Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. Because the gospel is not an individual secret thing, it impacts the world. We hear how the gospel impacts the Ephesian people in Acts, and it makes us think about how it impacts the world we interact with. You're listening to The Spirit and the Economy by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, verses 23 to 41. We're continuing the sermon series that we've been doing all summer, only a few weeks to go in summer, as I'm sure you're all painfully aware. Um, And today, uh, let me remind you again that the, 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 the sermon series has consistently been looking at how the gospel in the book of Acts engages the world. What happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ and the people of Jesus Christ go out into the world in Acts? How, how, what happens during that engagement? And in Acts 19, we see a really interesting and I think important engagement, and one that is very different. Most of the time in the book of Acts, when the gospel engages the world, you see things like joy, or miraculous healing, or conversions, or people speaking in tongues, and things like that. In this engagement, the gospel starts a riot. Let's read. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. And there is Ephesus. They're in Ephesus. So Demetrius called them together, the craftsmen, along with the workers in related trades, And said to them, you know, my friends, that we received a good income from this business. And you see and hear that this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus. And practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who was worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Well, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. People seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed to the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander out to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before his people. But when the mob realized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Finally, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great God Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? 
Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here. They've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what is happening today. And in that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. So why does the gospel provoke a riot in Ephesus? If I were part of the investigative commission that was appointed to to figure out what happened at the Ephesus riot and give a report to the councils there in the city, uh, I think in my report I would say that I can identify three main causes for the riot in Ephesus, three fronts in which the gospel provoked the good people of Ephesus. And I would like to share those, those three fronts where the gospel engages and, and sort of gives juice to this riot. And the first front is probably the least surprising. The people of Ephesus, obviously, many of them, see the gospel as a religious threat. Ephesus is Artemis' city. It always has been. The people have worshipped Artemis there for years and years and years. Her temple is there, and I think many of you know the temple of Artemis was not just an ordinary temple, it was a fantastic building, an amazing building, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so there it stood in the city, and, and, and people had been very diligent in worshiping Artemis, and, and she was worshipped all over Asia, as Paul says. People turned to her for fertility and for prosperity. But now here comes this fellow Paul. And Paul says, Artemis is nothing. And that gods made by human hands are nothing. And that Artemis can give no hope whatsoever. And that the only place that any person can ever expect to find hope is from Jesus Christ. This carpenter, this Jewish peasant carpenter that has been died and rose again and is king of the world. And he's the only source of hope. And Artemis is nothing. And Paul has been there for two years saying that, right? This is not just something Paul has come to town lately to express. He's been in Ephesus for two years. He started a church. It's starting to grow. And now there's people all over the city who are saying, Artemis is nothing. Well, to the devotees of the goddess, people like Demetrius, this would have been annoying. And it also would have been incomprehensible. How? Could they be leaving the great goddess Artemis, the daughter of Zeus himself, this powerful figure for this this carpenter who was crucified? Why would you choose a crucified carpenter over Artemis? Our goddess is being robbed of her divine majesty, says Demetrius, and so say all the people of Ephesus. So that's the first front. Obviously, it's religious difference is one of the reasons why this riot happens. But if we read carefully, it is pretty clear that this is not the main reason for the riot. I do not think it is this religious difference which is giving the juice 
to these rioters. Why do I say that? I say that because Ephesus is a cosmopolitan city, one of the biggest cities of the day, a port city, and there would have been foreigners from all kinds of lands coming through that city all the time, and many of them had different religions. Paul was hardly the first person to come to Ephesus and talk about a different God. And the people of Ephesus did not riot every time someone came to town and worshipped a different God. But they riot here, which brings us to the second front, where the gospel engages and causes trouble. The rioters are up in arms because the gospel is messing with their money. The gospel is engaging on an economic front. It's one thing when you say that there is another God in the world. It's quite another thing when the proclamation of that God starts to affect your bottom line. Demetrius and the other silversmiths are probably people who sell religious souvenirs. So if you go to Ephesus, the temple is outside the city about a mile. There is a road that leads from Ephesus out to the temple. And the guess is that along that road, there would have been all kinds of market stalls. And if you came as a pilgrim, as a worshiper of Artemis, you would have bought stuff there, the stuff that Demetrius sells. And Demetrius and his friends are making a good living off of selling these souvenirs. But now Paul has converted so many people in Ephesus that business is down substantially. And it's, it's not just the souvenir sellers are being affected. You'll notice that in verse 25... When Demetrius calls the silversmiths together, he doesn't just call the silversmiths, he calls together workers in associated trades, right? So the gospel is having economic impact up and down the supply chain, right? The whole Ephesian economy is being affected by the growth of the church. Demetrius even raises another spectacle. He says, well, what if what's happening here in our town ends up happening all over Asia, I know there are churches in other places in Asia. What if so many of our worshipers turn to this Jesus that we start losing pilgrims? Our business depends on out-of-town visitors. I, I don't know about you guys. I got a mortgage. I got a brand new chariot in my garage. I got to make payments on that. We got to do something about this. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Money is definitely part of what's giving juice to this riot. It's the economics. And this is not the first time. I'm not going to tell the whole story. But you remember Paul was in jail in Philippi, right? You know the story of the Philippian jailer, the earthquake in the middle of the night and how he was freed. Do you remember how Paul got into jail in Philippi? What was the reason he was thrown into jail? Go read Acts 16. It was money. Money is definitely what causes part of the juice here. Finally, the third front in which the gospel engages and causes problems for Demetrius and the rest of the people of Ephesus is that the people of Ephesus see the gospel as a threat to their culture. They see the gospel as a threat to the Ephesian way of life. There is a tribal dimension to the reaction of the people in Ephesus. And you see that by what they say during this riot. 
right? The mob doesn't just say, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. They say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That prepositional phrase matters. Artemis is Ephesus, Ephesus is Artemis. They are worried that if Artemis is diminished, Ephesus is diminished. They are worried that these foreigners are going to take away from their Ephesian way of life and culture. And you see that in verse 33 with how they react to Alexander. Alexander, he's the one who gets pushed to the front of the crowd to say something. He's not a Christian. He's a Jew. And he's pushed to the front by the Jews in the crowd because the Jews want to dissociate themselves from the Christians. They want a moment to say, hey, we're not with them. We know you're mad at them, but hey, we're good citizens. We're not causing problems. But as soon, and this is how it's worded by Luke in the text, as soon as they see he's a Jew, they start yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're worried that these foreigners are going to take away from their Ephesian culture and their Ephesian way of life. And they're so worked up about it and so worried about it that they yell for two hours. So the Ephesians are threatened on three fronts, religiously, economically, and culturally, politically. Those last two are interesting. Because Paul's sermons are not explicitly economic, nor are they cultural, political. Paul just preaches the gospel. And we know this because we can see what he preached. It's, it's, you see it all throughout the book of Acts, right? We hear what he says in his sermons. He proclaims Jesus. He proclaims Christ crucified, risen from the dead, raised to the right hand of God the Father, King of the world, who is coming again to judge the living and the dead to whom all people may have to give, to whom all people will have to give account. He preaches the gospel. He, does, he doesn't give an economic message. He's not preaching economic policy. He's not calling for an overthrow of Caesar. He's not calling for new policies in Ephesus. And yet, the mob feels like he is a threat to their economics enter their politics and their culture. And the mob is right. Jesus is a threat to their Ephesian way of life because the gospel changes everything. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not something we learn in Ephesians 19 that you can just cordon off into one corner of your life you can't just let Jesus into one little spiritual part of you while the rest of you gets to do whatever it wants. When you let Jesus in, he takes over the whole of your life. He wants all your moments and your days to flow in endless praise. And when the gospel comes into a church, and when a church is established in a city, the gospel doesn't just stop at the edge of the parking lot on Sunday morning. The gospel flows out into the world because Jesus is the Lord of all the things and Jesus cares about all of the things. The gospel starts in your heart and changes your heart, but it does not stop there. Paul never preaches directly against slavery. But when you tell brothers and sisters in the church that 
slaves and masters are equal in the sight of Jesus Christ. And when they are brothers and sisters in Christ, they have to sit beside each other at the communion table and call each other brothers and sisters. It's only a matter of time before questions start to arise about whether one brother should own another brother. It's only a matter of time before the institution of slavery starts to shake. Paul never preaches human rights. But when you say that every individual is made in the image of God and that Jesus died for every individual and that Jesus loves every individual, when you tell your children stories about how Jesus embraces lepers and stops for blind beggars and takes children on his knee, it's only a matter of time before you start to question any sort of system that treats people as disposable before you start talking about and trying to create institutions that take care of people as individuals. This is actually what happened in the ancient world. The gospel created the healthcare system in the Roman world. Rome didn't have a healthcare system until the Christians came along. And the Christians were so compassionate and, and full of care, and that care eventually became institutionalized. Tertullian an early church father, writes about that care and the impetus towards those healthcare systems. Talks about how Christians would give to this central pot. They'd give to this, this, all this money, and then the money was taken, these gifts, and they were not spent, I'm quoting now, on feasts or drinking bouts or eating houses. These monies were spent to support and bury poor people to supply the wants of boys and girls of destitute means, of old persons now confined to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in prisons for nothing but their fidelity to Christ, they also receive care. And other sources tell us that this, this care that the Christians have wasn't just reserved for each other. It, it was given to non-Christians. It, well, it flowed outside the church. And eventually this care was institutionalized into hospitals, into the healthcare system. The gospel changed the healthcare system. Gospel also changed laws. You've heard me talk about the practice of exposure. In the early church, or not in the early church, in the, in the Roman world, if a parent didn't like how their infant child looked, if it was some deformity, a cleft palate, or even if they didn't like the gender of their child, they could take the child into the wild and leave it and let it die. And that was perfectly acceptable, culturally acceptable. But then the Christians came along, and they didn't practice exposure, refused to do it, and they took care of other infants they found who had been exposed. And because they kept doing that, because they kept practicing it, eventually the rest of the world took notice and began to look differently at exposure. And a few hundred years later, exposure was banned in the Roman Empire. The gospel changed the law. You can't keep Jesus just cooped up in some private spiritual realm. Because the gospel changes everything and Jesus is Lord of everything. I did the funeral of Fred Rosema this week, member of this congregation. I don't know how many of you know Fred. He's been pretty sick, so he hasn't been to church a lot lately. A good man. 
He's a local businessman. He did a uh, hazardous waste disposable business. He was in the waste business, but he specialized in hazardous waste. And uh, he was very successful in his business. And his family told me a story, and I told this story at the funeral for those of you who are there. And it gave me a little bit of a window on how he ran his business. He told me a story about one time uh, he was on the phone with a customer, a potential customer, and the customer was trying to, to get Fred to give him a lower price. And Fred said, look, I'm giving you my lowest price. The price I give you is a fair price. It's a good price. I cannot do any better than this. This is the price. And the customer still wasn't happy. And he said, well, maybe you pay your truck drivers too much. Maybe you should just cut their pay a little bit so you can give me a better price. And Fred said, if I can't pay my truck drivers a decent wage, I may as well shut down my business right now. You know what I hear there? I hear there someone for whom the gospel didn't just stay in that spiritual area of their life, but spilled out into the way he practiced business. Someone who realized that the God who had been abundant with him, both in salvation, giving him more than he deserved and more than he asked or imagined. Someone that he knew he was completely dependent on God for every good thing he had, could not possibly run a business in the way that it was all about him and his profit, but understood that his business was for creating useful goods that gave other people flourishing. Started in his heart the gospel, but it flowed out into the way he did business because the gospel changes everything. So Demetrius was right. I mean, he's not a real good guy in this passage, but he sensed something, and what he sensed was correct. The spirit was moving in town, and the spirit was changing things. Just think about what happens to the various powers in this story. The Temple of Artemis, where is it today? If you go to Ephesus, you can still find it, but there's no walls left, it's just a site. The worship of Artemis, where is it today? There's nobody worshiping Artemis, maybe in some corner of the internet. I mean, these days that stuff is out there everywhere, but for all intents and purposes, nobody's worshiping Artemis anymore. The Roman Empire that the city clerk was so worried about inflaming with the riot. Where is it today? It's gone. And where is the gospel of Jesus? And where is the church? Here you are. And we're all over the world. And it's not always easy. Right? There are still riots. There are still opposition. But don't worry. Jesus is still king. The spirit is on the move. And he will fill every part of this world, and he will fill every part of your heart. Amen. Lord, it is good to be in your church this morning to hear your gospel. To hear the salvation that we have in you. To hear that you loved us so much that you, you gave your life on the cross and gave us more than we could ask or imagine. To remember that the future belongs to you, that you will come to judge the living and the dead, and uh, history is in your hands. Lord, we pray that that good news may fill every part of our life, and that all our moments and our days may flow in endless praise, and that our lives may proclaim your goodness to a world 
that needs to hear out. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.